tonight on Arena. Artists Martin Gill and Aideen Barry on their works in the ARC's Winterlight exhibition. And we talk to the winners of the inaugural Ivan Boland Emerging Poet Award. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Winter is often seen as the bleakest period of the year, the season of nature's retreat to be endured and battled through until life resumes in the spring. But an exhibition at the ARC, the Cultural Centre for Children in Temple Bar in Dublin, looks at the joy, hope and beauty to be found all around us in wintertime. Winter Light features commissioned pieces by a range of Irish artists, including Aidan Barry, Gowan Dunn, Martin Gale, Martina Galvin, Orla Kaminska and others. The exhibition runs until the end of January and joining me this evening two of the artists involved Martin Gill with me in studio here in Dublin and Aideen Barry joins us from Limerick where her large scale exhibition by Slight Ligaments is about to open we'll talk about that also but let's let's start with uh, with Winterlight this exhibition at the Ark your uh, piece your painting by the way we're going to tweet some images here for people to look at if you if you want to see what both Martin and Aideen are, are speaking about so I'll actually tweet Martin's uh, p- painting now, right now, up on our uh, uh, Twitter feed uh, at at RTE Arena. If you want to see what we're talking about here, Martin, the the painting is called Winter Feed. Maybe you could just describe to us what we're looking at first of all, and we get into what's behind what we're looking at. Maybe subsequent to that. Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, the painting is obviously located in a landscape, and the um, viewpoint of us, the viewer, is fairly low down, and we're looking across the landscape. Um, um, it's a winter landscape. The there's partially snow covered, and mm. it's obviously just, probably just after a thaw. So there's lots of greenery, lots of mud, and little bits of snow lying around, and in the foreground. There is a large bucket with two smaller buckets behind it. So the line of buckets leads your eye into the painting. Um, the buckets are surrounded by um, a flock of corvids, crows, there's rooks and a, and a jackdaw there as far as I know. And there is a horse in the middle distance. And the sort of suggestion that what's happened is that the um, owner of the horse or the pony says, is feeding them every winter, this is a normal event mm. when the growth has stopped, you know. And uh, I've noticed, because I live, I should add, I live in the countryside, yeah. so I see this. And one of the things about painting landscape and living in the landscape is when you live in it, you become familiar with all the tiny little minutiae of everyday um, existence within the everyday, the workings of the place, the outworkings, as I think Seamus Heaney called it. But it's just a way that... Um, people deal with the landscape they're living in and the way the landscape kind of deals with people as well. Yeah, because you're, you're not, I, th- I think, without putting words in your mouth, I hope, you're not seeking to give us here, even if it was a summertime landscape, for example, you're not looking to give us some kind of romantic idyll, some rural, uh, mystical beauty. You're looking yeah. at something much more practical and, and real well, absolutely, than that. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not interested in painting scenery. You yeah. know, these are, not about, these are not wide-eyed appreciations of nature or, or that sort of thing. It's much more the cut and thrust and day-to-day business of living in a landscape. And that business about feeding horses or whatever stock it is in the winter, is it's kind of ritualistic. You know, the people go out at the same time every day, leave the mm. buckets of grain out. The birds, uh, the aforementioned corvids, I got really wise to this, and they begin to gather in the trees and bushes nearby, wait till the, the animal's been fed and has moved away, and down they come and help themselves to 
you know, that what is left over, and that's what's going on in the picture. There's uh, yeah. there's one rook sitting on the on the rim of a buck of a bu- uh, bucket rather, and then there's four or five other crows flocking around. There's, there's one of them almost looking out at us, saying, hey, what, "Yeah, what are you what are you crying at?" <laughs> <laughs> That's it, yeah. There's a touch well, of that about I mean, it. They are incredibly intelligent birds mm. and they they are great problem solvers. Yeah. I know from feeding birds in the garden that, you know, you spend half your time trying to keep the crows, find ways of... Keeping the crows keeping away the crow, from the, yeah, exactly. for the smaller birds. Exactly. Now, we, I, I'll come back to your painting again, Martin, but in the sure. meantime, I'm, I'm going to uh, tweet up one of Aideen's. Uh, uh, this is, the, I suppose, the overall... Uh, a picture from this is from the catalogue the overall picture of of your work uh, a snapshot of your work Aideen this is a you might describe to us what we're looking at here uh, at RTE Arena if you want to see the image on on Twitter it's a projection yeah. up onto up onto the wall and on the floor uh, the floor of the arc as well maybe explain what's involved here that's right Sean yeah, so it's a, a huge architectural kind of uh, intervention into the beautiful arc building. So I used the long room gallery and I made this installation over kind of two floors that went up the wall, but also could be seen from above down from the landing in that gallery. Mm. And it's a large vinyl wall drawing. So it was one of my drawings kind of exaggerated and blown up uh, so that it kind of looked like it grew from the floor upwards or from or vice versa. And then I projection mapped these animated kind of performative lights moving all the way through these kind of tunnels or systems through the uh, drawings. Yeah. So it's, um, it's kind of magical. I also, I mean, I was really thinking about who my audience was going to be and who are the people who are going to interact with this. And of course, like the context of the arc mm. is that it's really curated around the experience of the child. And uh, I wanted them to feel that, you know, you're told don't touch the artwork. In this case, you can be in the artwork. Yeah, you, you can, can go where you underneath can, yeah, it. You could walk yeah. on walk on those projections yeah. on the floor and you can be, you yeah. can, I suppose maybe some of the projections might even hit your foot or your body if you're walking in and around there. Exactly. I, I presume exactly. that was part of the idea. But maybe you would describe, and I'm going to go in, in, in detail, there are four, I don't know how to describe the, the, the four mounds, uh, if you like. And this links in, I think, yeah. uh, Aideen, to your own living in the silver mines, which links in with Martin and talking about living in the countryside. Yeah. You you live in Tipperary near the silver mines. Uh, maybe yeah. you describe those. I'm going to call them pods, but you can correct me and <laughs> tell me what I should be calling them. And as we're doing that, we might, we might go into the detail of one of them as well. Yeah, sure. So they're kind of like islands. And it was really interesting hearing Martin talk about his relationship with the rural landscape, because my rural landscape is quite an unusual place. Like underneath our house, there are all these tunnels that go down for miles and miles for like nearly a thousand years of mining history in the Mm. area. And our local neighbours used to say, you know, that night you could hear the minder, mine, miners, you know, as you put your head on asleep on the pillow, they'd be working through the night. <laughs> so I thought that was such a really interesting idea yeah. of the invisible, you know. And it also had kind of conjures up images from antiquity, like Persephone going into the underworld. And of course, you know, that was kind of one of those myths I learned as a kid. And I thought that was interesting that, you know, light disappears with Persephone. She goes underworld. So I yeah. thought that was something to kind of pull on. So these islands or landscapes are like there's like movement, there's life happening within them. Yeah, because I've, I've tweeted now uh, at RTE Arena, one of those islands, and thank you for the correct term for them. And it's the one, <laughs> it, it has, in particular, we, we, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight little yeah. kind of 
almost like holes that we can see into the yeah. land, if you like. Above it is a kind of a moon-like figure, but one of them is this mm-hmm. big, this eyeball uh, kind of looking up as, <laughs> as, as, as well. It's, there's a kind of a mythological element to all of that, I'm presuming. Yeah, there is. Uh, and, and also it's a bit like, you know, one time I tried to climb the mountain from the back of our house, you know, up to the silver mines. And my my neighbor, Richie O'Brien, came out and he said, don't go up there now. You'll fall down one of those holes. And what we'll do then is we'll bring the priest out to bless the hole. And I thought this is interesting. I could be in stuck in a mine trying to cl- call out from here, you know. So I thought I'm going to make a bit of work kind of about me being stuck underneath also like yeah. Persephone or something. So yeah, you <laughs> Martin, Martin's having a good laugh at, at the thought of that. And, and a lot of it, it, it did strike me, Martin, how much, even though they're very, the style obviously of yours and Aideen's works, very, very different. But the themes are, are quite similar. I mean, going back to your, going back to your image, um, it, it is as much as anything else. When, when Aideen talked about the miners underneath, I thought, I wonder what kind of noise those crows make as they're pecking at that food that started to strike me but the other thing that that struck me in, in that winter feed uh illustration which i have up there on twitter again now at rt arena it's the the telegraph poles or the electricity lines that are there in the background all the time we're looking at man's intervention with the landscape here yeah well that's right yeah and it's interesting because um man's intervention in the landscape is it, it's surprising how quickly it can be eradicated i mean even aideen's holes probably mm. she's unlikely to fall down when i imagine you know <laughs> hopefully anyway there are easier ways to get to heaven but it's um it's just the power of 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 the landscape you become aware of it when you live in it you know it's the not so much the power but the permanency of it and you know people come along they live there they die out you know it might take generations whatever but the the landscape just goes on you know mm. it it there's a kind of primal permanency there i think that's hard to explain that's why the paintings are not actually about the landscape as such but they're about our dealing with it you know yeah because you, you kind of do get the the impression those buckets mightn't last those telegraph poles mightn't last even the little shift of a fence that we can see down near the yeah, horse exactly. that won't I last mean, that could be gone next year yeah, you know, but but the, the, yeah. that little mound of a hill away back in the background will be there forever in a day which touches 18 i think on your exhibition um at, at, at which will be soon to open at the in the limerick city gallery the overall mm. title of the exhibition called by slight ligaments you're kind of looking at this idea that in fact yeah this is permanent and we mightn't be as permanent as we like to think mm. we are mm. i mean i i have one of the greatest anxieties i have as an artist in the 21st century is this thought that we could be the last generation of artists and i mean we're living through this huge environmental catastrophe at the moment. You could argue that COVID has been one of these like man-made pandemics in a mm. way because of our intrusion on the natural world. And I'm just worried that the threats to us all are so great and what we have done to the planet has been so great that we could be the last generation of artists. And this is where my new work is kind of looking or inquiring mm. about, you know, what is the role of the artist in these great times of uncertainty? Yeah. Let's listen. So. To, actually, the centerpiece of this is, is a work called Oblivion. And I want to I want to listen mm-hmm. to a to a clip from Oblivion, which kind of gives us the context for what the, uh, what you're just talking about there. So this is from Oblivion, one of the aspects of this uh, soon to open at Limerick City Gallery, the exhibition by Slight Ligaments. What if we are the last of the artists? 
what happens if we are the last artists and the last generations of people left to inhabit this planet? What if environmental apocalypse is just around the corner? What if everything we have made, every song that has been sung, every piece of art is for nothing? What does the notion of the word oblivion mean? That's a, a clip there from there's there's a sound aspect I should have explained Aideen Barry to mm. to the exhibition as well. It's a, the music network. You have music involved in it. Several musicians involved yeah. in 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 what you're doing. But that question, Martin, it strikes me that the way you speak about the permanency of the landscape, perhaps you don't have the same. Aideen talking about an anxiety around the getting rid of us. Yeah, that was the doomsday scenario there. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean. Art and artists have have um, existed for so long. I mean, if you look, go right back to the cave drawings, you know, and what's happened in between then. And I think there'll always be, as long as there are human beings on the planet, there'll always be somebody fi- finding a way mm. of articulating their their life. But I suppose, Aideen, if, if I'm again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Aideen, but you're looking at this potential that there may not be human beings. But does that mm. feed in, Martin, yeah. to to that idea that you were saying, no matter what? The permanency of the landscape, the permanency of the planet is there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there'll still be, I mean, the topography may change. Mm. As you say, we may be all gone. But as long as the planet's in existence, there'll be, you know, mountains, valleys, hills, trees, whatever. Is that any kind of a consolation to you, Aideen? Because there is, there is a kind of anxiety around the, the, the piece that would be said overall. We, you know, we get this, there's a performative aspect to it. Um, how would you describe the characters who, who are, I don't know if I would call it dance, but there's a performance art aspect to an installation you made. They were like big shards sticking up out of the landscape, which again, I suppose, yeah, links so- in with mining. I guess like the whole thing is kind of inspired by an endeavour by this uh, musicologist called Edward Bunting, who saved the Irish harp from oblivion, which was in the 1796. He wrote down the last 66 Lilson airs and to immortalise them. And had he not made an endeavour or a statement like that, we would have lost this architect, this Mm. um, vernacular heritage, you know. Um, So I'm kind of interested in like, how do artists take seismic times like we're living through now and turn that into art? Mm. And who is it all for if things are going to be uh, wiped out by environmental catastrophes? And those shardic structures that you were talking about, Sean, I'm looking at like these kind of Japanese linguists and anthropologists are looking at like creating landscapes that live on past humans to talk about toxicity so I, as I said, I live in the silver mines and mm. this is a big man-made disaster because of mining and the landscape around here is actually poisoned from this man-made intervention and, you know, need to kind of communicate after this. How do you communicate yeah. through I, some sort of possibility? Anyway, sorry. I, no, not at all. No, because yeah. it's an interesting point. And I wondered to what extent mm. for you, Martin Gale, do you see that, that intervention of the man in the of man in the landscape in, in terms of the, your work in Winterlight? Uh, how how I suppose easy is it? How how non destructive is that intervention? Well, it, it's it's pretty non destructive because there are people who are existing, um, you know, in, in 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 the landscape as it is now. There's, there's no um, foreshadowing of anything sinister going on. It's just a landscape that's 
that is uh, as uh, permanent as it has been, as it is there, as it has been for decades, yeah, so centuries even, you know. So it's part of a continuum, I think. You right. know. Well, very interesting to speak with both of you. And certainly um, in terms of winter light, uh, you can see both Martin Gales and Aideen Barry's work. That's at the ARC Children's Cultural Centre. Winter Lights is the title of the overall exhibition. It's running there uh, through until January the 30th. And Oblivion, Schacht Wallacht as Gwelige. And I won't attempt the other language there, which is an Inuit language, I believe, from, from, from the That's Reet. Correct. From Reet, who's yes. one, of your, one of your artists, one of your vocal artists, uh, Aideen. Yes. That will be presented yes. as the centrepiece of Aideen Barry's by Slight Ligaments exhibition, which is at Limerick City Gallery of Art from the 16th of December through until the 13th of February. And then it'll be at the Source uh, Centre in uh, Art Centre in Thurles from March through until the end of April 2022. With all the encouragement we've been getting before and during COVID about the benefits of a walk and with gadgets like Fitbits and pedometers to encourage our pace and walk durations, Walking has become quite the fashion and almost de rigueur at Christmas time as a group activity. Oftentimes, uh, in the not too distant past, walking, or shanks mare as we might say, was our only means of transportation. And of course, while the legs are moving briskly, the mind can go elsewhere. Perhaps it can relax. And that is what my guest Siobhan Kane has been looking at, uh, the connection between walking and contemplation and indeed art. And you've been looking specifically at how artists, poets and, and various people have looked at walking. And let's start with Rebecca Solnit, uh, a writer and historian, and what she had to say, uh, her, a book that she wrote on walking. It's about 20 years ago she wrote this book, Siobhan, wasn't it? Yes, it's called Wanderlust. And that's a word I think evocative in itself. You kind of think, listeners, what does that evoking somebody and she has this idea that the act of walking itself has many different um, aspects so it can be political it's practical it can improve fitness but she also felt she wanted to delve into the culture and the interplay between politics literature and history Mm. and see why it's still such a potent force in lots of different facets. And she retraces some of the walks of the great philosophers and and great poets. That's one of the things that she does in the book. She looks at what they were doing while while they were walking. She does and she looks at impulses. So there's also the idea of um, one of the chapters is about uh, women walking and about the political aspect of it suggesting freedom and being able to walk in a kind of sauntering way, the way that Henry David Thoreau talked about Mm. in praise of sauntering. And that's something that women often didn't have the um, yeah, the freedom, the freedom to, to, to do, do that. Exactly. And she talks about that and how it can, that's the political nature of the writing. But she also takes us back, things like the flaneur that goes back in terms of French history and just ambling across mm. the street and what you might come across, the kind of hidden histories of a, a town, a village, a city, a landscape that you might never have come into. I, and that, that idea of the flaneur literally roaming about yes. and, and seeing what was in front of his or her eyes and, and drawing from it, very much at the heart of not only walking itself, but this idea that walking by concentrating on your feet... <laughs> You can make a space in your mind. Very much so. And that's something, it's funny, when Solnit wrote this 20 years ago, she couldn't have predicted that many of us would walk with a yeah. basically a powerful computer in our pocket. Um, and you mentioned the pedometer and the Fitbit, and a lot of that is attached to the phone. She couldn't have predicted that 20 years later, everybody would nearly have one of those. And she actually would be quite against that. The book is about getting away from the pull of technology and letting the mind 
go into a kind of rhythm and in a kind of almost meditative state where it brings you into a space that she feels not just you want to be in, but you need to be in. What kind of space then was the writer and walker, <laughs> Simon Armitage, poet <laughs> Simon Armitage, what kind of space uh, was, was he trying to create for himself in his, in his designed walks <laughs> in the Pennines? I think playful and provocative. So his books, he's done two books, um, Walking Home and Walking Away in the last decade. And Walking Home was very much starting from his terrain, essentially, because he's a Northern English writer, mm. that he thought, I'm going to do the Pennine Way, which is 256 miles. And he wanted to pay his way as a poet. So he would go along. And I know we have this with the Camino and so on, where you have the pilgrims, this idea of the pilgrim. So he'd knock into a pub or a kind of version of a Shabin, I suppose, and say, have you any space for a poet? I'll keep and pay my way through reading poetry. And he had various, <laughs> very, varying results, you know, some not so great where the locals felt I've had enough of this um, and let's put on the fruit machine which he, he used to have to sometimes um, he was in conflict with the fruit machine um, but sometimes it was very much where he'd put the hat around and people yeah. would give what they felt he deserved which is obviously um, a kind of interesting um, idea and he did make his way throughout the whole thing but it was the, both of the books the second book Walking Away is where he goes to the southwest of England so he takes some places very far away from his own homestead like mm. Devon and Summer said, doing the same thing, but also saying he felt more at home in the Pennine Way, but it had its problems and he felt less at home in the Southwest and it had its problems. And usually for him, it was a psychological aspect of a reckoning with himself. And in the books, is, is it prose that he's writing about the walks and the various things that happened and the stories about where he did manage to get the money for his dinner and the places where he didn't manage to get the money yes. for his dinner and his lodging? Exactly. There's not so much poetry mm. at play, which is interesting because a lot of people that will like Simon Armitage his work, see him. He is, of course, a poet and he is known primarily for that genre. However, it's prose that he's in, this in, yeah. in these particular But in, on the second of the walks, uh, the, the one that was down in the southwest of England, this is where he had these stanza stones. What were they? Well, actually, that was a thing that he, he did a collaboration with um, the Ilkley Literature Festival that's in the north of England. Oh, right. This is a different yes. walk yet again. And, and the Pennine Prospects and himself where it was a 50, again, it's kind of a 50 mile upland walk and then on these stones, the stanza stones were carved um, different poems that he actually wrote specifically for the piece for people to kind of stop and reflect but also showing I suppose the idea that nature is poetry and then we put poetry onto nature. Right. So there's that wonderful interplay again. You're going to read one of those poems for us and yes. uh, it's very suitable for this time of year obviously. And he wrote this in 2010 so it's called The Snow Stone. The sky has delivered its blank missive, the moor in coma, snow like water asleep, a coded muteness to baffle all noise, to stall movement, still time. What can it mean that colourless water can dream such depth of white? We should make the most of the light. Stars snag on its crystal points, the odd unnatural pheasant struts and slides, Snow, 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 is how the snow speaks, is how its clean page reads. Then it wakes and thaws and weeps. 
And Siobhan Ken reading the poetry of Simon Armitage. Siobhan speaking to us this evening about um, walking really and that philosophical and artistic space that perhaps walking can open up and how Simon Armitage used it in in two books and then in those Stanza Stones, uh, that particular project as well. You can't talk about anything in December to do with literature and not mention Charles Dickens really, (laughs) can you? But Night Walks, I'm not that familiar with this. What's involved? What was involved here? Well, this is for all the insomniacs out there Mm. or anybody that might for various reasons be going through bad patches with sleeping. Dickens had a really bad patch with sleeping and he felt in 1860 that he just couldn't cope with it and that he was restless and he needed to get out in the small hours of the night because he thought this would be an antidote, a Mm. cure. So he goes around just walking, walking, walking and he's one of the masters of social realism and we associate that with him. But he was struck by how deep some of the issues were. He, He felt he, as he said in the, in the particular book, Night Walks, or he confronted it, that he saw a whole community hidden of homelessness. He went to Newgate Prison, he went to Covent Garden, and he makes, the piece is short, in it, short enough in itself, but he makes London, this huge, vast city, seem like a village. And I think that's been a, that's a beautiful part of that piece of writing, is that he makes it from this huge macro aspect to a very yeah. micro uh, but he's telling us real. St- he's telling us real stories here. So th- yes. this is this is Dickens, the journalist, as opposed to Dickens, the novelist or the storyteller. Yeah, that's true. And then you can see, even when you go through it, you can kind of see where certain characters might have been pulled from some of these night walks for mm. some of his um, books. You know, he's he's incredible in terms of the way he um, names characters and so on. But some of them were pulled as well no. from his night walks, and he he. He got his sleep got better. It wasn't cured forever, but it got better. Of course, if you wanted to go walking for the whole day, you could do so with Ulysses. Joyce is giving you the perfect <laughs> map of, of getting of making your way around Dublin uh, and twenty four hours <laughs> twenty four well, hours to do so. Yes, he essentially said that you know if the world exploded tomorrow, you know you can re- recreate Dublin from the pages of my book, and it's one of the most famous walks in history, I suppose, um, mm. where you're getting the kind of from north to the south, and we feel certain things like Sandy Mount Strand and all these places are so evocative, even. For People that have never read the book, they'll understand how Joyce fetishised that. I, I suppose the Brontes as well. Walking is an important aspect of their work, isn't it? Very. And actually, that goes a little bit back to the sonnet and women's freedom in that the Brontes living in Howard, they had a very small... Um, small in terms of they couldn't really walk without a chaperone and they had one brother Mm. Bramwell but they also were so near you know the kind of the wilds and the moors and Emily I suppose with Wuthering Heights where the moors become a metaphor for her inner turmoil Catherine's inner turmoil and the love for Heathcliff you know as kind of deep as the rocks beneath so it's there it's so many when you start to think about it walking takes on this yeah. huge place in our lives. I'm beginning to think there's perhaps a new genre in literature and <laughs> filmmaking. I never, walking films, and if you start to think about walking films, you're going to be watching it sometime in the next while, <laughs> The Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which of course, 1900, and then was made into a film 30 years later, and you actually have a yellow brick road. Mm. So Dorothy and the gang are actually following a road and they have lots of off-piste moments with yeah. little adventures and you get you do and you start to think about um, other kind of you know Stand By Me yeah. you know in the last where the four boys you know based on the short story The Body by Stephen King made into an iconic film where the four the, you know the, the kind yeah. of boys go and they learn so much about themselves as they walk to this particular Resolution. Clearly you're a fan <laughs> of the walk and making the space uh, for the yes. walk to happen, Siobhan. But maybe we'd leave the last words to Nietzsche and his <laughs> assertion around walking. This is quite interesting. What had he to tell us about well, walking? 
Well, first of all, he thought that the best reflection comes through walking. And um, I mean, Jane Austen was a bit like that too. And we think of Elizabeth Bennet going all mm. around the place. But Nietzsche thought that the he thought it was an act of creation in itself. Werner Herzog's a little bit like that as well. Um, but Nietzsche himself felt that there was no better space for creativity than actually walking because that's where the best ideas come to you. All truly great thoughts are conceived while walking is exactly <laughs> what he said. Siobhan Cain, thank you for being with us this evening. That's Siobhan Cain on the art and philosophy of a good walk. Dublin-based artist Jesse Jones works across film performance and installation. Often through collaborative structures, she explores how historical instances of communal culture may hold resonances in contemporary social and political experiences. Jones represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale in 2017 with the project Tremble Tremble, a title inspired by the 1970s Italian Wages for Housework movement. And Jesse was also the inaugural artist in residence for the King's Inn Society of Ireland, where she was researching the relationship between law, testimony and performance. Most recent work, a sculpture inspired by the writer and activist Maureen de Burka, is in fact, I suppose, the culmination of that artist in residency. And Jesse is with me in, in studio. I, I want to go back to the beginning of the residency in some ways, or certainly quite close to the beginning, I think, Jesse, March 2020 of... We all remember March 2020 when everything yeah. suddenly stopped. Yeah. Where were you when it stopped and what a place to be? Yeah, I had been I had been living in the gay house of the King's Inn, um, which was behind the big black door at the top of Henrietta Street and um, behind the very hallowed walls of, of King's Inn University. And, and um, which in January and February was, I suppose, a, a very busy vibrant, spot. Vibrant, buzzing, you know, like hundreds of students crossing the threshold every day and I had been there for a couple of months and as part of the residency um, I had full access to the building so I was able to go through the archive and visit the library and had loads of help and support um, from the team there and it was really fascinating because actually it's like you what you would ask for Christmas as a as an artist is to just get in behind yeah. the scenes on something that you're so curious about and I was even able to take like a module in jurisprudence that, you know, that spring and that yeah. autumn. So, you know, I was right in the middle of it, and know, taking of a change in career, you know. <laughs> Loads but, um, of activity, yeah, lots of things yeah. going on around you. And then, zoomp. Yeah, then the gate, the big black abs- door closes and you're the only one with absolutely. the key kind of thing almost. Absolutely. And I was the only one with the key. So I was very popular in the neighbourhood with all the dog walkers. Maybe um, you shouldn't be telling the King's Inns that. Maybe not. <laughs> But so, yeah, but you amazing. were there, so you were in this, like I, I, I kind of feel like you must have felt you were in some kind of time capsule yeah. because you were inside, obviously, in those buildings, yeah. uh, which have a, a much older uh, a history to them yeah. that is not the twenty first century. And when the students and uh, staff are all gone, it must have felt like you'd travelled back in time. Do you know it actually exactly felt like that? That's a really amazing way of putting it because I remember standing. It was quite dark, and you know the weeds were growing up through the cobblestone because people weren't walking across it. You know, mm. um, and you would see hardly anybody. You know, just through the gates, you'd see people outside, and. I really was thinking a lot about, you know, people that had been there like Daniel O'Connell and Avril Deverell who passed the bar, like the first person, the first woman yeah, to pass I think the you, bar, you know. Uh, had you, had you, had, could you access materials still when there was nobody there? Had you, were you able to get into things like the Deverell archive, which I think was important I had to spent you? a lot of time in the archive beforehand. Mm. So the place that really resonated with me during lockdown was the grounds itself. 
and I was really drawn to when I would walk. It's interesting this idea of walking and thinking, mm, which we were just yeah, talking about. Yeah, because yeah. I think it's really true as well. And you know, it's like a drawing practice for an artist. It's like this kind of meandering thought. And I would walk through the grounds of the King's Inn, which I'm sure lots of people who live in the North Inner City would be familiar with that space. And there's this um, amazing. 19th century Kirk statue of, of Three Graces who originally when they were in Earlsford Terrace were standing in a line but now they're they're back to back to back as though they've had some kind of argument. Yeah, almost like in, in, almost in a circle but yeah, it's kind of like a Facing three. out. Yeah. But one of them was missing her left arm and I would walk past this statue and I'd go you know there's always the gap that I'm so curious about. And did when you, it comes did you mean, art. Did, was it an accident? That was it the moving of the, the statues I, from Mars? I've, I've tried to investigate, but I haven't found the culprit yet. But you know, <laughs> suffice it to say, it's been missing for a long time. Hmm. And I've always had a, a, a kind of gravitation towards women's arms as as a kind of metaphor or an iconic archetype in terms of speaking about women and agency and and power in a way um, and the three fates or the three graces um, are industry commerce and Hibernia and it was the left hand of commerce that was missing and I just thought that's absolutely perfect I need to cast somebody as this missing left arm of commerce and the person who I'd been always really really drawn to as a political character and as a historic figure and as a feminist as, and as a working class activist in this country was Maureen de Burke. And, and maybe give us a sense of who Maureen de Barca is and was. And, and in particular, I suppose it's around the, the Juries Act in 1976. Mm. If, you, if, you rec- if you can recall for us the kind of the essence of what that case was about and what Maureen de Barca was, was act, activate, whatever the verb yeah. for that is, was being an activist in favour of. Yeah, well, it was the Dublin Housing Action Campaign. So herself and um, Mary Anderson were arrested for trespassing. And they had been arrested many times for trespassing um, in housing occupation, direct action movements. And the trial went to a jury. And in realising that the trial went to a jury, number one, everybody on the jury was a private property landowner. So that they're going to be kind of biased. But also they were all men. So this was the kind of moment of recognition that like since 1929, there hadn't been a jury in Ireland that had women on it. So this was a shocking mm. realisation and it, it drew Maureen and, and Mary into this very intense relationship where they became in the throes of what now is history. But they describe it as just part of their everyday lives. So, you know, when I asked Maureen, could I make her a monument? Mm. What I really wanted to do in the King's Inn was intervene in that story of the law and who gets to be heralded, you know, who gets to be emblazoned on the walls of of the law school, the King's Inn. Is it, you know, judges and chancellors or can it actually be somebody who broke the law and changed the law? Like who broke the law, mm. who trespassed, who who was arrested and when when she went to trial she challenged the constitution so in the portrait of Maureen and who it was uh, it's very important you might tell us who was the person who was acting on our behalf in that challenge yeah, Mary Robinson of mm. course became the president of Ireland and she was acting on her behalf and you know there was there, it was a great moment but it, Maureen describes it as you know a moment in which she didn't know she was becoming a kind of a person who was changing mm. history. They none of them felt like that's a fascinating thing about the um, the the Irish women's liberation movement. When you talk to them now, they they kind of were like, 
we were doing what we felt we had to do and we were doing it at the time. You know, we didn't know that it was such yeah, there weren't a transformative cons- moment. There weren't people you know? out there saying, let's go out and change history. No, let's deal with this problem that's yeah, in front yeah. of our nose it's this every very day. day. Yeah, yeah. So, to go back to the the art side of it then, you have these three graces, this, um, yeah. the Kirk statue from, yeah, the from what I suppose kind of is an 18th century, it looks, feels and, and yeah. looks like an 18th yeah. century statue. Yeah, it's kind with, of in that romantic mm, style and... Arm missing know, off, the, the left yeah. hand of commerce is missing, so... Yeah. and they're heroic, you know, yeah. they're these kind of symbols of femininity that we always see around this, this idea of the fates and, you know, these principles that institutions say they stand for and, you know, these fates are holding these tools and I showed Maureen an image and I brought her up to the King's Inn and showed her the statue and I said, I want, I want you to replace her arm and I want you to think about what tool you would use that would change the law or what tool you would use to shape the law. And from that point, she really was like, I don't know. I was like, I hope she doesn't pick a mug of tea or, you know, <laughs> I hope it's some way um, aesthetic. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't pick no, a mug she, of tea, she no. didn't. But what did she choose? Well, she chose her own copy of Bunrock Naharan. And um, and you have I, I saw a wonderful picture of it today uh, of of her, Maureen de Burke standing in front of the yeah. statue, kind of where the left arm is missing, and holding yeah. up her copy of Bunrock the Heron in front of it. That became the basis for the, the sculpture that we're you, yeah. you're going to tell me about. Yeah, she's she's so passionate about Bunrock the Heron because she really feels that with with knowing our rights we have the ability to completely change them and I think her her passion about this got really enlivened uh, again around the repeal movement you know that, that's when I met Maureen for the first time was around repeal and she really advocated for repeal in terms of you know we changed the constitution in our generation and this generation now must do the same you know so the 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 sculpture that you have made, uh, just describe what you've made uh, yeah. in in some ways to fill in that missing gap in yeah. the three graces. It's a it's a Portland stone um, sculpture of her arm holding Bunrock Naharan sat on top of a, a burnt wooden plinth made by Sarah Murray, and um, the sculpture itself was made through a kind of interesting. Uh, new technology process um, that I developed during lockdown and I'm a filmmaker so I really missed making films during Mm. lockdown you know but I originally studied sculpture so I've always had this kind of sculpture film kind of hybrid relationship so I found out about this process where you could scan an object or you could scan a person and it's usually used in like films to make a prop or to make a double for a body but I found this foundry up in Northern Ireland or this quarry up in Northern Ireland where they can cut into Portland stone with this process. And what was it, what was it, what specifically was it about Portland stone? Was it the colour? Was it yeah, the, was the, it the material? Time, the time kind of materiality of it. Like there's so many, there's so many statues and cornices and parts of the architecture in Kings Inn that are in Portland stone. And when I had been in the Kings Inn for so like this stillness mm. of lockdown time I really was like I'd love to make a stony thing or a thing you know that doesn't disappear so you know the idea of it being an ephemeral performative feminist thing just went out the window I was like I want to make something that is going to be very hard for them to get rid of solid and real (laughs) it's going to be hard you know to get rid of and where 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 is the where is the sculpture on view now it's in 
the King's Inn facing uh, the portrait of Justice Lafoy. So there's this beautiful relationship between these two women that, that shaped the law in this country in the last century, you know. Um, so th that's that's a really I think that's a really appropriate place for it to be and we launch it tomorrow and also to accompany the sculpture we've managed to Maureen very generously donated her um, own personal archive and we've been able to collate that together yeah. as a resource for students and anybody who wants to research further yeah. Maureen and her relationship to right. law and feminism and you think that there will be another creative residency we might hear about oh, that absolutely. In, 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 in it's the such a great opportunity Jessie who was the inaugural uh, creative artist in, in residence at King's Inn, which is a partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company and the Honourable Society of King's Inn and Jesse's Sculpture. The left arm of commerce, replacing that gap, filling the gap, is available uh, to, to see there. Thanks for coming in to us and talking to us this evening, Jesse. Earlier today came the news that Emma Tobin and Lauren Green are the first winners of the new Yvonne Boland Emerging Poet Award. The annual scheme is the brainchild of Poetry Ireland and Stanford University, where Yvonne Boland taught and was set up to honour the poet who died, of course, in April of 2020. The recipients will each receive €1,700 as well as three mentoring sessions by leading poets over the course of four months. I'm delighted to say that Emma Tobin is with me in studio now and uh, Lauren Green joins us on the line from, from New York. Congratulations to, to both of you. First of all, 200 poets applied for, for this award. Uh, for for you sitting in front of me here, Emma, what what was the feeling when you heard that? Yeah, you you are going to be the joint winner of this uh, this inaugural emerging uh, Ivan Boland Emerging Poet Award. I was totally overwhelmed. Um, for me, poetry has always been a really private endeavor, um, and I I never expected that when I shared it with the judges that they would be impressed particularly by it. You know, um, and and. I was just shocked, but but also really, really honoured to be recognised by an award that honours the life of somebody like Ivan Boland, who was such an advocate for um, new voices, emerging poets, mm. and especially poets from diverse backgrounds. And and where did you first come across the the, the poetry of Ivan Boland? Where did that was it first? Were you first exposed to it? So I got into I got interested in writing poetry when I was around 16 but obviously I had no idea what I was doing so the way that I taught myself as writers learn is by reading as much poetry as I possibly could so you know I picked up books of T.S. Eliot Sylvia Plath and I came, came across Ivan Boland and I was just blown away to find an Irish poet who handled language so deftly and so interestingly and her style was something that really resonated with me the way that she kind of cuts just barely beneath the skin of the world in a way that just reveals truths about human existence and the beauty of our lives and the intricacy mm. of our lives and kind of the hidden histories of Irish women uh, it, I just found it really affecting and it was he was one of the poets that I really tried to learn the most from. Right. Okay. Well, and, yeah. and as I say, also joining us from New York is Lauren Green, uh, another winner of this inaugural Emerging Poet Award. Congratulations to you uh, as well, Lauren. Um, where did you first come across the poetry of Ivan Boland, Lauren? I first came across Boland's poetry when I was in graduate school. Um, a mentor of mine, I guess sends some common thread in our work, some sustained attention that we both pay to 
what Emma was just describing as the ordinariness of life. And I just, I instantly fell in love with the way that she depicted domesticity, weaving this complex tapestry between the disparate threads of myth and love and routine. Um, And I think that her, her poetry really had this transformative power that held me in a spell as soon as I left it. You know, I felt I was a changed person exiting the poem from when I had come into it. And when it came to um, actually submitting for this particular award, was it a body of work that you had to submit, Nora, or was it a specific poem that you had to say, take a look at this one, please? How did that work? It was five poems. And and you actually, I think you have one of them there um, that you might read for us, one called Dear Wonder. Maybe give us a context for this. Sure. So for the past few months, I've been living in the writer Carson McCullers' home in the South. Um, and I wrote this while I was there, sort of confronting just the total solitude of my mm. predicament. So that is the preamble. And let's hear the poem. Dear Wonder. Sure. Dear Wonder. I have holed away in this house for months, not to escape the world, but to feel more inside it. And yet when I emerge, I doubt I will be closer to the trees, their sacral knowledge, nor able to tease from autumn's compositions, the nighthawk's sharp cry. Could I have tried harder? Even memory flees when it comes to near absence, our pasts running out ahead like children down to seize fireflies at dusk. Along Cherokee Avenue, there is a church where once stretched a river, a stoled beacon kneeling before its mouth. Always the air smells of lilacs, always the street lights on the street corners stay dark. At night, we ask each other questions with our hands, take turns prophesizing on bygones. One day, the world will be stripped clean to its pith, and still we will hold it to our tongues stealing for any last drop. And that's Lauren Green with her poem, Dear Wonder, one of the poems that uh, helped win her the uh, new Avan Boland Emerging Poet Award, along with Emma Tobin, Lauren in New York this evening, and Emma Tobin with me in studio here in, in Dublin. Um, I suppose there, there's the financial prize, which is a nice thing to get, but I, I would have thought that the, the mentorship from poets is, is probably one of the more exciting aspects of this particular award, Emma. Yeah, for certain. Um, I mean, money you can get by doing a job, but this opportunity to get to meet one-to-one with poets that we both admire um, and, and be mentored by them is uh, totally Do you know priceless. who those poets are yet or do you get to choose or will you be... We get some... some um, options. Options. <laughs> and we get to sort of sit down and discuss what would be best for us individually and sort of discuss options. But um, yeah, it's, it's really exciting to be able to kind of think of who I would love to explore poetry with. Yeah, well, I won't I won't put you on the spot in terms of the who because, you know, that's for another day's <laughs> discussion rather than just yeah. live on air, perhaps. Um, can we listen to, to your poem as well, or one of your poems, Emma? Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the, the Body is a Mob, is that the title? The of Body the is a Mob. The Body is a Mob, let's hear it. Okay, um, my poems tend to run quite long, so I'm reading just the first two stanzas for today. Um, The body is a mob. I can hide my shoulder blades now. A bird tucking tattered tail feathers to dust the ground with the drag of gravity. I can hide 
my hip bones beneath a rip tide of muscle fibres. Planted deeper than skin, oil slick with a rim of fat to butter soft, the pains and points. I can feel their teeth prized up underneath, tent poles to my man cave. They do not tell you, even if you slip spine deep beneath, the recollection of palm-smooth prayers. Angels don't have wings. I was born without mine. My grandmother spoke of bathing bad people in tar, sticking feathers to their skin, the imprints of palms against bare chests. Her matches she kept in the hall table, not for lighting stoves then, just out of habit, but I saw her strike one once to show me how to light a man on fire. I dreamed of that. Bear sin outlined in the shape of a running man. That's Emma Tobin with the, the opening two stanzas is it, Emma, yes. of the poem, The Bodyism of. And clearly that, that kind of physicality is hugely important to you in terms of your writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, my poetry is like deeply concerned with the body. You could almost say it's obsessed with the body. I've always had a really complicated relationship with bodies. For example, with my mother's body, which is full of cancer, and my body, which I've put through like many trials and which has been put mm. through many trials. And it's a it's a real preoccupation of my poetry um, that it, the the idea of creating possibilities for poetry to reflect the diversity of our bodies and the potential of yeah. our bodies. Finally, yeah. let me let me come back to you, Lauren and Lauren Green in New York. How much of an injection in the arm, if I can stick with the body metaphor for the moment, <laughs> uh, into the the creative arm is the winning of this award for you, Lauren? Oh, it's just it's completely surreal. As Emma was saying earlier, so much of what we do is private, just toiling in solitude and not knowing whether this work is going to ever see the light. Um, so to have my efforts rewarded yeah. in such a manner is the most gratifying acknowledgement yeah. imaginable. And I'm sure it's, it's the same, something similar for you, Emma. Very much, very much, yeah. Well, listen, congratulations once again to both of you, Emma Tobin and Lauren Green, the first winners of the new Ivan Boland Emerging Port Award uh, at the 2021 Ivan Boland Emerging Port Award. Further details of that award on poetryireland.ie. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research. Janice Furphy was the broadcast coordinator. Damien Chanel was on sound this evening. Tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock once again here on RT Radio.